My name is Brian, and for those of you who don't know me, I'm the pastor here at Faith Lutheran Church, and I want to say a special welcome to uh, any guests we might have with us today. As Jeff said at the top of the service, uh, we're in the middle of a sermon series uh, called Better Together. And the big idea behind this sermon series is that God has made each one of us unique and special, and we happen to believe uh, that God uh, created us for one another, for community. And the more that we know about ourselves, um, the more that we can serve effectively in God's kingdom. But also, the more we know about ourselves and our shortcomings, uh, we can ask others around us, our friends, our loved ones, uh, to help us to become better versions of ourselves. And each week, as Jeff said, we're looking at a different Enneagram type. And uh, the book that uh, I know many of us are reading is called The Road Back to You. And uh, uh, inside there is a bookmark uh, with three different options for Enneagram assessments. And the idea behind the Enneagram is not so much to stereotype you or pigeonhole you or typecast you or peg you as a this, that, or the other, but it's really meant to be a tool for you to consider uh, possibilities for how God might be using you uh, in your unique special gifts and growing you. You know, sometimes when we hear about um, the Myers-Briggs or uh, the DISC assessment or, or even the Enneagram, uh, I know it's very easy for us to say, well, that's just who God made me, right? And we almost use some of these personality assessments as an excuse for our bad behavior. So I'm just putting you all on notice. Whatever your type is, it's not an excuse for bad behavior. And one of the great things I like about the Enneagram is um, that there are uh, different versions of the nine types. There are the healthy types uh, uh, on the Enneagram, and then there are the unhealthy behaviors. And we've got the yellow flag here as just kind of a, a caution sign. And most of us uh, go through life navigating between healthy and unhealthy behavior. Um, some, maybe a lot of time we just kind of spend in the caution zone. And so that's what we're looking at, uh, continuing to look at today, looking at uh, Enneagram Type 4, which is known as the Romantic. Sometimes it's also known as the Individualist, the Introspective uh, Feeler, the, someone, the, the person who feels deeply. And I think Mary, the mother of Jesus, uh, was an Enneagram 4. And so we're going to look at uh, Mary's story this morning and just a slice of Mary's story. It's that part right after the angel Gabriel came to Mary and said, you are going to have a baby and he is going to be the Messiah. And so we're going to be in the Gospel of Luke. So if I didn't tell you already, get out your Bibles uh, or pull up Luke 1 on your phone. And uh, we're going to get there in just a moment. Luke 1, I think it's beginning with verse 46. And we are going to pick up with that great portion of Scripture this morning, looking at Mary's life uh, and consider that Mary might just be an Enneagram for a romantic and individualist. So let's pray and invite the Holy Spirit to continue to move among us. God, we do thank you uh, that your love is so reckless. It is so deep. It is so far. It is so wide. It is so profound that, God, you continue to chase us down and pursue us. 
And Lord, maybe except uh, for the Enneagram fours, those romantics, we don't always get your love. And so God, help us to feel this morning. Help us to experience this morning deeply your great love for us and for all of humanity. And Lord, as we look at this uh, familiar story of Mary, the mother of Jesus, may the words of my mouth, the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, for you are indeed our rock and our redeemer. Amen. You know, Mary, the mother of Jesus, is uh, the most celebrated saint in all of history, hands down, right? Those of you who maybe have a little, even a little bit of a Catholic background know that Mary is a pretty important person. But the interesting thing about Mary, the mother of Jesus, is even though we think of her as the, you know, this saintly woman today, that in her day, Mary was not really uh, celebrated all that much. And really, um, no wonder. Mary was uh, a young teenager. She was very likely uh, 13, perhaps 14, very unlikely that she was older than 15 years old when the angel Gabriel came to her and said, hey, you're going to have a baby. And your baby, you're going to call him Jesus, and he is going to be the Messiah. I mean, Mary was just a kid, right? She was a young teenager. She had very low social status. Mary also lived in an obscure town called Nazareth. Nazareth was a no place on the map. It wasn't uh, big. Uh, it wasn't politically powerful like Jerusalem. It was just one of these little country towns. Nazareth did not have a Walmart. Nazareth did not have a movie theater. Nazareth did not have a Carl's ice cream. They maybe had a Casey's grocery store gas station, right? But that's Nazareth. It was just this little town in the middle of nowhere. So here's this young girl in this sleepy little village. And Mary was poor. Her parents were peasants, she didn't come from an aristocrat family. She wasn't wealthy. She had very, very little. And so Mary, in, in many, many ways, was the most unlikely of all candidates to carry the mother, to be the mother of Jesus. Except for Mary had a faith in God. Mary's family was Jewish, and like her Jewish family and her Jewish friends, they had been waiting for the Messiah for a long, long time. Mary had hope, she had expectation, and she read Scripture over and over and over, and Mary longed for the Messiah to come. But you know what? God had not spoken to God's people in about 400 years. And so even though Mary had hope and faith and, and this desire for the Messiah to come, she probably thought, yeah, he probably is not coming in my lifetime anyway, but I'm still going to hope. That was Mary. She had this incredible faith, this faith in God, her Jewish faith. As she's waiting, all of a sudden, the angel Gabriel shows up. To say that Mary was startled uh, is a complete understatement. I mean, nobody thought truly that this is how God would show up in the world in, in the form of an angel Gabriel. And Mary thought to herself, not in her wildest dreams had she ever considered that she would bear the Son of God. 
impossible. And so when Gabriel announces this to Mary, she does what none of us can hardly imagine that she would do. Of course, she's afraid, but she says, I am the Lord's servant. I'll do whatever you tell me to do. She accepts this responsibility to carry the Messiah. And then Gabriel uh, disappears. And I can about imagine after Gabriel disappears, Mary's heart is just thumping, right? Now what do I do? Do I go tell Joseph, my fiance? Do I go talk to my parents? Do I go uh, up and dance on the roof of my my, uh, mud-thatched house and do a jig? What do I do? Scripture tells us that Mary left immediately from that little sleepy town. She goes to visit her cousin, Elizabeth, about 100 miles away. So for seven, eight, nine, ten days, Mary travels to go visit, and she's holding in all this news, all this emotion, all this excitement, all this wondering with what's going on. And then the story continues in Luke 1. Mary arrives at the door of Elizabeth's house, and I can about imagine what's going on. Before Mary can open her mouth and say, guess what? Elizabeth looks at Mary and says, don't even say a word. I know what you're going to say. Right? And Mary's like, no, I really don't think you do know what I'm going to tell you. And Elizabeth says, no, I do. I know what's going on. Because Elizabeth was carrying John the Baptist. And she looks at Mary. And she says, let me tell you, you are carrying the Son of God, the Messiah, the long-awaited one, the anointed. And we're going to pick up now. Mary's response to Elizabeth. Actually, before we get there, I just want to kind of set this up. Many of you know this is called the Magnificat. The Magnificat. And Magnificat is, is a la- it comes from the Latin uh, to magnify. And those of you who have uh, read uh, the old King James Version, uh, it, it, the Magnificat begins, My soul doth magnify the Lord. Does that sound familiar? Yeah, it's the Magnificat. And, and really what the Magnificat, and this is why I need to set the stage for you a little bit, the Magnificat is, is a poem. It's, it's, it's this uh, remarkable prose of uh, really Mary quoting 21 different Old Testament scripture texts from Genesis, Isaiah, Habakkuk, uh, the Psalms. And she just kind of mashes them all together. And then she just blurts out this emotional response that we know as the Magnificat, that my soul magnifies the Lord. It's poetry. And those of you, if you're anything like me, you don't really get poetry. And so you read it and you go, whoa, there's a lot going on here. A lot of emotion, a lot of feeling, a lot of something. Looks pretty neat. I just don't get it. So if you don't get it, it's okay. But for you Enneagram 4s, you're going to be like, yeah, I get it. This is emotion, raw. And this is why I think Mary is an Enneagram 4, the romantic, because she just, she just lives in emotion. You know, the 4s, the um, they've been said that they don't just feel emotions, that they are emotions. And so if that's you, I think you, you, you resonate with Mary the mother of Jesus, as she just lays this out uh, for all the world to hear. And I'm going to read it in the, the New Living Translation, just mostly for me, so I can understand it a little bit. 
If I read it in the King James, uh, I think many of our heads would just kind of spin. This is what Mary says in uh, Luke 1, beginning with verse, verse 46. Uh, after Elizabeth tells her that she's carrying uh, Jesus, the Son of God. Mary responded, Oh, how my soul praises the Lord, how my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he took notice of his lowly servant girl, and from now on all generations will call me blessed. For the mighty one is holy, and he has done great things for me. He shows mercy from generation to generation to all who fear him. His mighty arm has done tremendous things. He has scattered the proud and the haughty ones. He has brought down princes from their thrones and exalted the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things and sent the rich away with empty hands. He has helped his servant Israel and remembered to be merciful. For he made this promise to our ancestors, to Abraham and his children forever. These are not just Mary's words. These are words pulled from the Old Testament, 21 different verses. And I think this gives us great insight into who Mary was. That in a moment of great uncertainty, in a moment of great shock, in a moment where she is just filled with emotion, she can't help but just start quoting scripture. Isn't that beautiful? Mary's just like, I don't know what to do, so I'm just going to blah, blurt it out. And it's just all this scripture comes pouring forth, all these emotions in the raw. And you know, it's been said religion is the opiate of the, of the people, right? The great uh, Methodist pastor and missionary to India, Stanley, he said it this way. The Magnificat is the most revolutionary document ever created for humankind. I mean, this document proclaims a revolution, and it's poetic, and it fills the soul, and it's filled with emotion, but make no mistake about it. This is a document that Mary speaks. It's like a stick of dynamite that just gets thrown in uh, to God's people to proclaim the revolution that is coming. And Mary, of course, is Jesus' mom. And as we know, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. I mean, this is how Jesus spoke. He spoke in revolutionary terms. And I think he got it from his mom. Because that's what she's doing, is she's not just emoting and proclaiming uh, about the Messiah, years and years of prophecies awaited, but it's also proclaiming this revolution. And just real quickly, I want to hit on these three revolutions that are going on that are proclaimed here, in, beginning with verse 51. She says, he has scattered the proud and the haughty ones. And so what Mary is proclaiming, and Jesus is going to proclaim in a little bit, that there is a revolution going on in the person of Jesus Christ. And when he comes, he is going to put a death nail in pride. Because each one of us, as we go through life, we have an option. Live for ourselves or live for God as we serve others. And Jesus says, the way of following me and my way is to lose yourself, and you got to die to yourself, which means lay down your pride. And Mary says, Jesus is coming, and he has scattered the, prou the proud and the haughty ones. Verse 52, he has brought down princes from their thrones and exalted the humble. 
So the second revolutionary proclamation is a social one. That Jesus, when he comes, he is going to take those who are on high and bring them down. And those who are low, he's going to bring up. That there's no longer this society of classes of good people and bad people. But in Christ, we are brothers and sisters in Christ. And, you know, this is sometimes uh, one of the reasons why I talk to you is, hey, brother, hey, sister, because we are equal. And that didn't just happen. That came because Jesus came and he brought about this social revolution of making all of us one in Christ. And then the third revolution I want to just lift up here that Mary proclaims is in verse 53. He has filled the hungry with good things and sent the rich away with empty hands. It's an economic revolution. When Jesus comes... He is going to invite those of us who have plenty to be generous with those who do not. And if you're not sure which side of of that you're on this morning, I'll just tell you, all of us have plenty. And God has called each one of us, every single one of us, to be generous with others. It's a revolution that Jesus called out to us, and he got it from Mary as she's proclaiming and uh, reciting from these Old Testament passages. Now, these revolutionary words, they come from a romantic. Most of us could not come up with or think of or just all of a sudden start blurting out these incredibly, uh, not only revolutionary, but very emotional uh, expressions of how good God is going to be and how the world is going to change. See, this is really who the, uh, the Enneagram 4s are. They just live and breathe emotion. They're just filled with emotion, emotion like most of the rest of us can't fully uh, understand. And the other thing I love about uh, Enneagram 4s is that they're very uh, remarkably self-aware. Not only are they very emotional people, but they know that they're emotional people. They're probably some of the most self-aware people of all the different personalities. And it's a wonderful thing to be around an Enneagram 4, a person who's a romantic and individualist, because what you see, they know what you see, and they just celebrate it. They love their emotion, they embrace their emotion, and they just wear their emotion, right? You hear this language of, hey, they wear their emotions on their sleeve. Anybody know somebody like that? Yeah, that's they're probably a 4, Right. And they know they wear their emotion on their sleeve. And and they're not even going to apologize for wearing their emotion on their sleeve. Sometimes they wear their emotion on their sleeve so much, you're like, oh, TMI, right? That's a lot of information. I'm not sure I wanted to know that much emotion about what's going on in your life. And and the Enneagram 4 romantic individualist is like, there it is. And they just put all their emotion out there because they understand that that God created us as emotional beings. And they know that in order for them to uh, become better human beings and to to reconcile past hurts, they just got to name it. They just got to name it. And for the rest of us, maybe, I don't know, stoic Norwegians or Germans, we look at these Enneagram 4s and we're like, who are you, right? You just lay it all out there like Mary and just kind of say all these things. You're just so filled with emotion. They're creative. They're personal. And we love being around these fours. But one other thing about the Enneagram fours is that they are individualists. They're unique. 
They're different, right? They're different than many of the rest of us. And I think we can all agree that uh, Mary was unique and different. See, the mantra for a, a, a romantic is, I'm me, I'm unique, nobody's like me. Nobody's like me. I am 100% unique. But on the other hand, the downside of that is nobody understands me. Nobody gets me. And can we all just agree that, that I think that's Mary? I mean, how could you understand Mary, what she was going through? How could you understand this, this, this little peasant girl carrying the Son of God? I think Mary spent her entire life feeling misunderstood. And that's the romantic, the individualist. They're unique. Several years ago, um, before I uh, understood that our son Logan is an Enneagram 4, an individualist, I had a brilliant idea. I have a lot of great dad ideas um, and, uh, in my mind. And so Logan had many passions as he was a child growing up, uh, primarily in Atlanta, Georgia. And as, as he was growing up, uh, a couple of Logan's passions were, one, is that he loved marine life. It's like Logan was born with this innate sense of let's go fishing, right? I think Logan was born with a fishing pole in his hand. And he didn't just love to fish on lakes and streams and ponds and rivers and, and oceans. Um, Logan loved to have uh, fish close by. So we had uh, multiple aquariums in our house. Then we were always making a, a run to the, the pet store for this, that, and the other. It's a very expensive hobby. Just a little heads up on this, all right? Aquariums. And, and Logan had salt water, he had fresh water, I mean, and he just loved, loved, loved uh, marine animals. Uh, but that wasn't enough for Logan. Uh, he wanted to be even closer to them, so uh, he, he and I took a scuba diving class so that he could get really close uh, to the, the marine life um, up close and see him and, and all that good stuff. And, and so that was one of Logan's passions. And, and, and one of uh, Logan's other passions growing up, he had many, um, was that Logan liked firearms. I'm just saying, we grew up in the South. He grew up in the South. And uh, so where there was shotguns, rifles, pistols, BB guns, and, and we didn't, uh, he didn't, we didn't uh, shoot animals. It was like shooting clay pigeons. It was shooting targets, you know, all those things. So, um, I mean, he just liked firearms. He just liked to shoot things, I guess, dead things. I'll, I'll just throw that out there. He probably shot some live things too. I don't know. I don't remember. You know, I will not, I will not confirm or deny that when Logan turned 16, he purchased his first 40 caliber Glock handgun. I'm not going to confirm or deny. That might have happened. And some of you are wondering, what parent would allow that, right? Well, you didn't come here for a parenting class today, right? Don't judge me. I have made lots of bad decisions in my life as a parent. But it's true. Logan owned a 40 caliber Glock handgun as a 16-year-old, and he loved to shoot it uh, out, out in the country, uh, rural Georgia. So in my mind, as Logan is starting to think about college and kind of the next level, I thought, well, this is this. I, I, I got it figured out. He likes to, uh, marine life, and he likes to shoot things. Coast Guard, the Naval Academy, Right. And so I, I just encourage Logan, you know, it just seemed like a no-brainer to me. These are the, you just got to go look into this. In fact, when Logan was 17, I bribed him to go to Connecticut to, the, to take a tour of the uh, U.S. Coast Guard Academy. 
And what Logan learned very quickly about the Coast Guard, about the Navy, about the Army, about the Marines, is that the U.S. military is all about conformity. Logan, like a typical four, had great self-awareness and knew that just wasn't going to work for him. He probably would have gotten court-martialed on the first day, right? Because individualists, they don't want to have the same haircut as everybody else or even the same color as everybody else. They don't want to dress like everybody else. They don't want to behave like everybody else. They don't want to, they want to have separate hobbies than everyone else. Their, their mantra is, I'm different, and I'm going to celebrate my difference. So we look at Mary, and she was so different. And we've got these Enneagram fours, these romantics, these individualists in our lives. We say, what do we do with them? Now, I'm going to pull up my flags here quickly. Because Enneagram 4s are amazing. Uh, Like I said, they're not only individualists, but they are deep feelers. They emote things that most of the rest of us wouldn't think about. They help us to, to feel things that we would never even consider. But there's a mystery behind it because they are just, they're just so loaded with these emotions. But as they let their emotions out, we hear and see and experience uh, the, the artistry in their lives. And we're like, whoa, I never thought of it that way. I mean, think about your favorite poets, maybe your favorite musicians, uh, those uh, artists, uh, maybe like even a tattoo artist. I mean, it's those people that are just, they're just, we, we call them out of the box thinkers. Or maybe we even say, that person's just out there, Right because they're such an enigma, because they've got so much emotion running through their veins. And we look at them and they're like, ah, I think I get a little bit of what they're saying. They help me to feel some of those things. Let me get to Luke here. So some famous Enneagram 4s, Bob Dylan Judy Garland, Vincent Van Gogh, Dolly Parton, Edgar Allan Poe, or one of my favorite that I grew up with, Johnny Depp, right? There are these people that are just like, what is going on with them? I don't get them, but I think they're pretty amazing. And they make me feel things that I would never feel on my own. I'm going to go back one more Logan story here. I got his permission, by the way. I had to bribe him. Again, Logan, his growing, many of his growing up years were in Atlanta, Georgia. And uh, our particular context is um, I was at a church in inner city Atlanta. And Logan was really influenced uh, by the urban hip-hop rap culture of inner city Atlanta where many of the artists today live and, and record their, their artistry. And uh, so that became kind of uh, part of Logan's growing up, listening to these rappers. And I got to tell you, I didn't really get it. Um, and, uh, but I tried to understand it uh, a, a little bit. But one day, Logan came home, uh, actually a couple years ago, more recently, 
He said, Mom, Dad, you got you to gotta hear, you got to see these words of this uh, hip-hop artist, a guy by the name of J. Cole. So we sat down, we, we, we listened to his stuff, and it was, you know, to me it sounded like noise and noise. And, uh, and, and he said, no, no, look at the lyrics. Look at the lyrics, what he's saying. And I looked at the lyrics, and he's like, this is poetry. I looked at it, and I'm seeing four-letter words and, you know, and, and just a lot of stuff. And, and I, just, I didn't get it. And see, the, the thing about hip-hop, the thing about rap music for many people, it's not so much what they feel uh, through the music, although I think there's a part of that, but it's, it's the poetry. I think it's what's expressed and, and the emotions uh, that come out in that particular genre of music. You know, and I still listen to, uh, try to listen to hip-hop or rap today, and it's just right over my head. I just don't get it. I'm not a four. I'm just not wired that way. But for Logan, it's, it's, it's a deep, profound way of proclaiming, and especially with J. Cole, this, this, uh, this rapper, this, this hip-hop artist, this, this poet who proclaims the goodness of humanity and the ways in which we can be better people, and it just inspires him. And that's what, that's what fours do, is that they just feel deeply, and they invite us to feel deeply, and, and most of the time, I miss it. But, you know, like any and all of the Enneagram types, there are some downsides, uh, some dangers. And one of the downsides of being an Enneagram 4 is they live in this world of the ideal. You know, most of the rest of us are maybe a little bit more on the realistic side, not, not the Enneagram 4s. They, they paint a picture in their mind of the ideal. They paint that ideal for their life. They paint that ideal for your life. They paint that ideal for the world's life. And so they run around contrasting, juxtaposing what is in reality and the ideal. And it causes them great inner turmoil because they just cannot reconcile the ideal from reality. And it can be a really hard thing uh, sometimes for fours to look at the rest of us and say, what's wrong with you? They might seem like really big critics, right? And not just with you, but with everything and with the world. Because you know what? In their minds, um, they've, they've got this fantasy of what uh, the, just how things are supposed to be and how perfect it is. And so when you're around a four, you just got to know that, that that's just the lens through which they see the world. They, they see this ideal and they want the world to be um, just, just perfect. Now, the other thing that I've already alluded to um, is uh, the worst fear from Enneagram 4, a romantic, an individualist, is to fit in, to be normal, to be like everyone else. The romantic wants to walk into a room and, um, you know, look like just very casual that they haven't really paid attention to what, uh, how they chose their clothes. Oh, they did how they're doing their hair. They did. They've got everything is going on with their image. It's all laid out there. And they're screaming at you, I'm different. I'm an individual. I'm unique. It's their greatest fear. And at any moment in time, when they start to kind of slowly feel like they fit in with the rest of the crowd, they're like, oh, this is the worst thing that could happen to me. Right? And so it makes them really feel like outsiders. 
They know they're outsiders. They want to be outsiders, but, but they also hate being outsiders. Do you see the conundrum that they're dealing with? They're struggling with their uniqueness, and, and they, they're having a hard time reconciling. I'm different, and you don't get me, and this is frustrating me, and so I'm just going to tell you more with my emotions how it makes me feel, right? So Enneagram 4s, romantics, we love them. They bring so much joy to our lives. They help us experience so much. But they themselves have a really difficult time seeing themselves as wonderfully unique because they have trouble contrasting or juxtaposing that with the world. So I'm going to close uh, by giving three suggestions uh, for you, Enneagram 4s, and those of you who know an Enneagram 4, uh, to become a better you. Because with all the types, uh, there is hope. Uh, there is good news. And so the first thing I want to encourage you uh, to think about, uh, I just want to say um, thank you for your honesty, even though sometimes it's TMI and makes the rest of us feel uncomfortable. Thank you for being so honest uh, with your emotions. But what I want you to hear, romantics, individualists, is that you are not your emotions. Your identity is not how you feel on a particular day. Because emotions are fleeting. They come and go. Emotions, I want you to celebrate them, but be, be reminded, remember, that they are just a small snapshot of who you are in that moment, in that time, in that place. They are not you. And for you romantics, you individualists, your identity is in Jesus Christ. You know, you, your life feels like a beach volleyball blowing around on the waves of the ocean. And I want to give you the imagery of Jesus as being your anchor, the one who uh, holds you fast, holds you down in the midst of all the waves, which are wonderful and rich and full. But that's your identity. You are a child of God. And there's nothing you can do to run away from that, as we sang about this morning. And though the oceans go up and down and all around, you are a child of God and you are loved. For those of you who are not Enneagram 4s, romantics, individualists, but you have a friend or a loved one, here's what you need to know. Your friend or loved one is on a roller coaster ride. Their behavior might be perplexing. They're going up and down and all around. And what, you know what you need to do? It's hang on. It's hang on. They'll come back. They're just out there doing their thing, their emotional thing, right? They'll, they'll come back. And so we got to be patient. You got to let them be fours. You got to let them be emotional. You got to let them go out there and do their artistic thing, even if you don't understand it. And they will come back. Number two, your romantics, your nostalgia, your ability to look at the past and reflect on the past and think about the past, is, it's, it's remarkable. I'm not a nostalgic person. I'm just going to tell you, I don't get it. But I love you nostalgics who can just really look at the past and wrestle with the past and, and chew on the past. But the problem with that can be is that you live in the past and you have trouble moving forward. And the image that I was thinking of is that this is how you go through life, walking 
backwards because you're always thinking about the past. How could you have done it better? What should you have done? What could you have done? And, and, you, and you're one, again, you're very self-aware because you spend so much time on the self-reflection. But you can go your entire life walking backwards and never looking forward. And I want to invite you, Enneagram 4s, to turn around and start walking forward. Look into the future. Dream into the future. Step confidently into the future. Continue to be nostalgic for sure. But look into the future. Because oftentimes um, you, you can easily get stuck by looking at the past. And number three, celebrate your uniqueness. Celebrate uh, living and thinking outside the box. Um, but here's the deal. You're all over the place, right? You're, that, that's just who you are. That's who God made you. You are all over the place. But one of the ways that you can move from being unhealthy or being healthier is to develop regular rhythms in your life. Rhythms and practices uh, like eating healthy, eating regularly, sleeping regularly, and, and healthy with regular rhythms. Um, spending money in, in a very disciplined way. Practicing spiritual disciplines like prayer, reading scripture, gathering, coming to church on Sunday, serving giving, all those, those spiritual disciplines. And I know every fiber in your body says, that's what everybody else is doing. I want to be different. I don't want to live by rhythms. I want to be me. I want to do everything different than everybody else. Well, I got good news for you because the world is upside down right now. You know what normal is today? Nor yeah, exactly. We laugh, right? Normal is we sleep Every now and then, right? Stay up way too late, get up way too early, take uh, way too long in naps, right? The boss don't, doesn't know because we're working from home, right? I mean, irregular sleep, that's normal today. You know what normal uh, e eating habits are today? Junk food, anybody else? Uh, just me, the, the quarantine 15, right? Yeah, it's, it's just, that's, that's how we roll, and uh, in, in that's the, the world in which we live. Um, you know what, uh, how, how people are, are practicing uh, exercise these days? They don't, right? I mean, that's normal. Don't exercise. Oh, maybe every now and then I'll exercise. You know how people, uh, are what's normal for practicing the spiritual disciplines of, of reading scripture? 7% of Christians, people who show up at church, read their Bibles every day. 7%. And that's the Christian. That's you guys. Only 7%. That's what's normal today. Now you think about the rest of the world. They're not reading their Bibles. You know what's normal for praying? You pray when you feel like it. So the good news is, if you want to be normal, live your life like everybody else. But if you want to be different, put in regular rhythms, consistent disciplines in your life to become healthier, to eat better, to sleep better to exercise more, to, to read scripture. I mean, if you want to be a radical revolutionary, read your Bible. Nobody's doing it, right? Be a, embrace your rebellion. Read your Bible, pray regularly. And I think I'm just going to end because I think that's a good news for all of us and a good challenge for all of us to be a revolutionary like Mary 
and Jesus and the Enneagram fours. Let's pray. God, we thank you um, for Mary. We thank you, God, that you created her uh, so filled uh, with emotion, so filled with this spirit of uh, individualism. And Lord, how could we understand what it's like to be Mary? This woman who spent her whole life around people that probably felt very, very alone. Lord, we thank you for the romantics in our lives. We thank you for the individualists, those who are looking deep in their souls and sharing and bearing their lives and their emotions with the rest of us. God, make each one of us better. Make each one of us revolutionaries. The Lord, as Mary proclaimed, you have come to do good things, amazing things. And may we be those continued people in your world. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer.